Your attention, please. Paul and Alex are required to proceed to the gate immediately. What? No way. What is happening here? This is the last call for the Layovers podcast. Really? Come on, man. This is our thing. We got this. Oh, yeah. And we made it. Of course, geeks. Flight 60 to Nairobi. And today I'm with Iceman and Maverick. Hi, guys. <laughs> hey, hello. <laughs> I let you decide who's Maverick and who's Iceman. That, that, I don't think that that's a fair choice to make because they're both completely awesome characters. And as for me, just don't call me Shirley. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Hi, Mark. Welcome again. We're so happy to have you here again. Last time was for uh, your book, Skyfaring, that we both enjoyed so much. We've uh, been following you, obviously, because you've been writing in a lot of publications. I've seen articles of you in the New York Times, in The Guardian, etc., etc., etc. But we're having you today because you have another little book coming up. I do, yeah. I've got this new book coming out. It's called How to Land a Plane. And it's part of this uh, series that's uh, coming out in the UK called Little Ways to Live a Big Life. So there's four or five books in the series. You can learn how to play the piano or how to draw anything, uh, how to count to infinity. And uh, slightly easier than that last one is uh, is how to land a plane. <laughs> <laughs> we've we've uh, both, Paul and I, have had the pleasure of reading this book. And it is, it's a delightful book. But one I I hope I never have to use, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the title is, is uh, it's kind of aspirational, I guess. You know, it's kind of a fun way of framing, you know, what the book is really about, which is how planes fly, you know, how they're controlled and how they're landed. Uh, there's this uh, great book I came across that's from, it's from 1938, actually. And it's by this guy named Nigel Tangay. I think that's how you pronounce his name. And he was in the RAF, I believe. And, and he wrote a book in 1938 called Teach Yourself to Fly. Um, and this book was actually, um, you know, that was a time, you know, in the years around then and afterwards, of course, where a lot of people were contemplating a career in service uh, in the military, um, whether they wanted to or not. And that book was actually given out to a lot of people before they started their flight training. So it's, it's quite a seminal book. And uh, he has this line, which I was really delighted to find. Somewhere in the start of the book, he says, he's talking about the title of the book, which is Teach Yourself to Fly. And he says, I do not intend to be taken literally. <laughs> um, so I, uh, I'm a fan of that line. Um, he also goes on to say that if you want your baptism of the air, you can just go to a flight school nearby for five shillings, um, which I think... Oh is not really the current price of a flight lesson. But, you know, again, he's talking about, you know, about how planes fly and how they're controlled. And um, and I guess the title, How to Land a Plane, of my book, is it's kind of a fun way of framing, putting a little bit of narrative and a little bit of imperative <laughs> behind a topic that I hope a lot of, you know, air travelers will enjoy. That's absolutely uh, how it feels as well. Paul, I think you've done some flight training, haven't you? And I, I certainly have done quite a lot of flight training. And the, the tomes that are thrust upon you when you're going for your private license are these dull, academic, almost almost exclusively, books. But you've managed to distill essentially the same information into this this wonderfully light, in a, in a positive way, little book that, that just brings the whole thing to life without having to get into too, too much of the, of the academia and the 
but without glossing over the science. That must have been quite a, a balancing act. If I may, before you answer, Mark, uh, context for those who haven't read it, because this episode is released basically when the book is just being released. Uh, the, the title says it always is How to Land a Plane. It's a bit of a departure from your previous book, because it's actually How to Land a Plane. I want to our listeners to get that. Yeah, it's that's really a, that's like... A point. <laughs> I, I was reading it almost like a thriller, to be honest. It's not a thriller, <laughs> because... You know, I, there's a reason I called you Maverick and Iceman at the beginning because out of the three in this show, I'm the lesser uh, pilot here because I've taken like a few, you know, kind of demonstrations, lessons to get in, but I never actually trained. And it it really feels like, okay, now I could do it. Maybe probably, you know, going to crash the plane anyway at the end, but it's, it's really that. So I want the listeners to understand it's really like, don't take it too literally as, you know, it's a lesson, but it's, it looks like really like a step-by-step, very well versed way of understanding what are the dynamics and what is necessary to land a plane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I did want to talk through it. One of the sort of challenges of writing this is, of course, there are many different kinds of planes. And so it was <laughs> it was a challenge uh, for me just to sort of distill the essentials of it. And, then, and also, of course, I only fly one kind of plane now, um, the 747. I, I do a little bit of light aircraft flying with friends. But, you know, there's lots of different kinds of aircraft, you know, obviously. And so I did talk to a lot of other experts after I finished it, especially people who are these kinds of uh, jacks of all trade who kind of make it their business to fly all kinds of planes. And, you know, I went over it with, with some of them and, and they and they would say, well, yeah, you know, yeah, okay. Um, but in a more general sense, you might put it this way or something. So there's, there's a sort of tension between making it specific enough to be interesting and accurate, but also general enough to apply to, um, you know, to aircraft in general. And of course, as you know, from any flight lessons you've had, there are these basics, which really do apply to any aircraft. You know, I, when I first started my training on the 747, one of my instructors, you know, said to me, it is a big Cessna. Like, you do not think this is any, <laughs> you know, do not think this is anything other than a very large, fast, uh, heavy, powerful <laughs> Cessna. Um, and, you know, he was joking, I think, a little bit, but, you know, he's not really in another sense. I mean, the basics of yaw and roll and pitch, you know, the axes a plane can move in, the four forces, which, you know, everyone learns about of, you know, thrust and drag and lift and weight, the classic set of instruments that every plane has, or most most every plane. I mean, there are different versions of them, and um, many people don't fly in instruments at all. If you're flying a, a small plane or a glider, for example, instruments are less important than they are in, in other environments. But the basics are the basics, and it's it's kind of a nice thing. I mean, flying isn't you know isn't that old of an endeavor, um, and the basic instruments on um, a seven eight seven or seven four seven flight deck will be recognizable to generations of, of aviators, even if the way it's displayed, whether it's on a screen or on a dial. Those kind of more superficial questions change, obviously, but the basics are, are there, and I, I hope they're in the book as well. Yeah, I think that was one of the the things that you captured so well was you know, physics is physics is physics, and that doesn't change no matter what. And there's a there's a passage in the book that early on, which I think just captures this beautifully and reminds the reader from the very beginning, a plane is a plane. And, you know, whether it's a 400-ton Boeing uh, or a, you know, like you said, a Cessna, that doesn't change. I'm wondering if we can ask you to read this, this passage that made me uh, laugh out loud about how an airplane actually flies, because that's the question so many of us have on that we tend to push to the back of our minds when we when we step on board a plane. Sometimes my friends ask me how planes fly. What they usually mean is, how does a wing work? There are a couple different ways of explaining it, not all of which, frankly, are very satisfying or intuitive. And perhaps the best answer is the simplest one, and that was given long ago by Wolfgang Languish, one of history's greatest author aviators. In stick and rudder, 
first published in 1944. He wrote, the wing keeps the airplane up by pushing the air down. That venerable statement grows even more remarkable, as another pilot I know is fond of pointing out, when you see a 400-ton 747 rise into the sky for thousands of miles in a dozen or more hours over deserts and mountain ranges and entire oceans. Its vast, shining wings are pushing and pushing against nothing more than the invisible air. Lift, then, primarily overcomes the weight of the airplane and of everything that it's carrying into the heavens. You, your breakfast tray, this little book. It even lifts the wings themselves, which is kind of meta and best not thought about too much. <laughs> I love that. I sat there staring at the wall for like three minutes after I read that passage going, oh my God, it does. How does that even work? It's weird, right? <laughs> it is weird. Uh, it's uh, it's one of those, yeah, it is It is best not thought about too much. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but I wonder, I mean, it's interesting. I was kind of wondering what you guys, you know, what is your... I mean, I think some people don't really want to think about how planes work, and and you guys are, are so interested in the, in the business of aviation and the and the experience of it, and, you know, the experience of being a passenger and, and of the sort of industry as a and its infrastructure and airports and all that. And how often do you think, or do you even want to think about what's actually going on? I I love thinking about it, and I think when you're in a transcon in a you know a brand new airplane and all of the the sound has been dampened to quote unquote improved passenger experience you have so little opportunity to experience the true joy of flight there are a couple of of times during a flight that i think you get finally get to experience it which is ironically during turbulence you realize how insignificant you are and also when you are descending through cloud and for a brief moment you are you can really see how fast you're going yeah. relative to a reasonably stationary object. And which is a giant object. I mean, sometimes when you see another plane in the distance next to a cloud, you realize how big those clouds actually are. Yeah. And then you see how fast yeah. they're going. Um, you know, that, that makes really clear how fast they're going. I also like the little, I mean, nobody likes turbulence, but when you go into a cloud, you often have a bit of a, a jolt or a bump from it, which is the cloud is there because air is lifting, um, usually. And so there's, there's movement in the air, which you sense when you fly into it. For me, that's a, that's a fun reminder as a passenger of what's actually happening. Yeah, I think it's important to never lose sight of it. Paul, Paul, do you do you think about it? Are you able to think about it? You know what? I actually I think that it's helpful. Uh, for longest time, when I was younger, I was always wondering why the change of regimes, for instance, in the plane. I agree that we we tend to not hear them as much now with the newer planes that are more quieter. But it's one of the only experiences flying a plane when you don't see in the front. You see only on the sides. Mm. You have no control whatsoever and no idea what's coming up. Now you have some cameras, of course, that give you some hints. But I like to be explained. And I think that a lot of people, even though they think that they don't want to know, like we don't want to know how sausages make, this book is not... <laughs> this, this book is more the logic of doing it, right? Of course, it reads like a thriller, as I said, because I'm like, I was like, oh shit, I, I, I have the commands now, what am I supposed to do, right? And I've actually never landed a plane on my own. I've landed a plane always with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, also known <laughs> as uh, Roger Murdoch, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> no, I think that people that are a bit anxious about flying, it could also help. This is what fear of flying courses that a lot of airlines offer. They go into these kind of details and say, guys, this is normal. This is what happens. It's not only magic. We're not like uh, Clarkson and just pressing on the accelerator and that's why we fly. So the, it gives a bit of reassurance that even if you don't see what's happening in front, the fact that it jolts a bit when you enter on cloud is totally normal. For that, I would encourage people to read it. One of the things that surprised me a little bit after Skyfaring came out was 
you know, maybe a half dozen or readers who got in touch with me and said that they were nervous flyers, they had a fear of flying, and that after reading Skyfaring, they felt better about flying. And that kind of surprised me because that was, you know, that book is not at all, well, it's a little technical, I suppose, in some aspects, but it's more focused on the sort of experience of being a pilot. And that was kind of a nice surprise for me to get that reaction. You know, aviation has the, you know, it has that sort of poetry to it and also obviously the, the technical side. And I suppose between the two, many people might find some comfort in, in either one or another of those aspects of flying. Is that why you wrote this book? Because it's, uh, you know, the, the skyfaring was, um, what I loved about it was uh, poetic, almost like this experience of flying, what it represents, of course, from a pilot's point of view, but it really caught home a lot of stuff that we as passengers can experience as well. I, I keep coming back to place lag, which for me is like a wonderful word because I keep having it all the time, actually. Now I can actually name it. <laughs> but the first thing, honestly, when I started reading it, it reminded me on an article you had written. Of, uh, I don't know exactly when it was. I think it was on eon.co. It's the parlance of pilots. Oh, which yeah, was a bit of yeah. It was a bit of a bridge because it was still, you know, emotional, which, by the way, in that book there is as well. But it was going into like the more details of what you see in front of you as a cockpit. Is that why you wrote this book? What was the trigger that made you say, hey, you know what, I'm going to write a book about how to land a plane? I guess, you know, in Skyfaring, there wasn't a lot of, uh, of sort of technical description. And maybe I wanted to appeal also to, um, you know, to future pilots. Um, I, uh, I was on a flight recently, and uh, I can't remember where I was, which is a common common situation <laughs> for me. Um, I think maybe we'd come back from <laughs> Dallas, uh, and we were back at Heathrow. And uh, we had a family on the upper deck who came in to see the, uh, the cockpit after we parked. And their son was maybe 16 or 17. And he was, I think he was about to take his first lesson or was even maybe going to, to make a visit to one of the flight schools in, in the UK about where he might do a commercial course in a year or two. So he was sort of at the start of his career. And then the captain was a senior captain who only had three or four months left to retirement. And so I was taking the photo of them in the flight deck. So the kid was in my seat and the captain was in his seat. And um, they both had these enormous smiles on their faces, you know, oh, at, opposite, nice. at opposite ends of the career. The captain was kind of, I think he was looking forward to, um, you know, to retirement. And um, this kid was looking forward to, uh, you know, to the seat that will open up eventually. And it was kind of a reminder that this is, this is one of those jobs that, um, you know, that people really do love. And if someone, you know, reads this and is kind of inspired to take a lesson for a little more than five shillings, uh, yeah. or if, they, uh, <laughs> if they're lucky enough to get a sponsored, um, you know, airline uh, training position or, or through another route, then yeah, that would be great to hear. That, that's what, again, what, you know, just kind of reiterating what Paul said, that Skyfaring managed to capture the magic. And it really is, as far as I'm concerned, there's no physics involved. This is pure witchcraft and wizardry that keeps an airplane in the sky to do what anybody <laughs> says. But it is this magic, like, you know, you sit on an airplane, you look around and people are, you know, watching their iPads or reading the paper and you just kind of want to go, guys, we're flipping flying. <laughs> you know? Can we not just take a moment and appreciate this? We are at, we are flying in the sky at 600 miles an hour. Just take a breath and just realize that. And I think that was what was so captivating about skyfaring. And you know, with the new book, how to how to land a plane, I think understanding the procedure and process behind that magic is really rather captivating as well. Um, and also, in a way, as you say, reassuring, knowing that. The deviations are so microscopic as to be, you know, almost bizarre that everything is so 
regulated and normalized that that it's you know it, it's incredibly reassuring to read that that type of detail alongside the the poetry and and, and magic of uh, of skyfaring so they seem to be very complementary books well one thing i i really wanted to include in this which uh, i think isn't all that well appreciated is you know i mean there's the landing of course at the end of an approach but you know the an approach itself is is an incredibly regimented process and you know the idea that there is this path coming out of the runway going up at a certain angle into the sky and that every plane gets onto that path and that you know that path can be um, a radio beam or it can be uh, something something that's programmed in the in the flight computers but but there is this very shallow descending slope in the sky that a plane gets on long before it, it nears the runway you know that's something you can see that so clearly when you're when you're in West London and, and you see the planes descending, I mean, they're all in the same place. They're all at the same height. Like, it's a very um, structured, you know, it doesn't, obviously it doesn't look it because it just looks like clouds, but, um, you know, <laughs> but there's a, but it's a very structured environment. And I, I think that's, um, you know, that's something that uh, maybe isn't as appreciated as it should be. But I, I was wondering, you know, when I was offered, when, when the editor suggested I write a book about flying, she said, you know, it would be just fun to have a slightly more technical book about flying. And she said, do you want to do takeoffs or landings? And I actually had a big debate about it in my head. And I eventually I settled on landings. But I, I think, you know, it's kind of like the Beatles versus the Stones. I mean, what do you do? You have a <laughs> do you guys have a strong preference for one experience over the other um, as as passengers? Or oh wow, that's hard to say. Actually, they're both. There's something, and I think you, you mentioned it in the book, there's something quite almost liberating in the takeoff because for suddenly you have a sense of massive power and you're getting there and then you fly. There's something, I don't know, I, again, use the term liberating in it, which, so I would say that I prefer, and it's not technical or anything, I prefer the departure because I'm like, I'm about to fly. Whereas when I'm about to land, I'm like, well, this is going to be the end. Where is going to be my next flight? So, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Less, because I'm more maybe emotional about flying is like when we take off, it's like, wow, here we go again. Again, this magic happens and I'm going to be in the skies in a minute and I'm going to see in this probably as well the feeling of being, you know, strapped to your seat because of the massive power, especially if you are, I don't know, in the 757, you know, with that kick when they, yeah, yeah, when they yeah. stop. Yeah. Bro, Alex, do you have a preference yourself? So I, I just got back from my my father's house yesterday and he's uh, spent what 45 years of his life as in the airline world and we spent a long time discussing this question and I think that the way that I I landed ha was uh, <laughs> <laughs> as a Passenger, I much prefer takeoff for exactly the reasons that Paul mentioned. Just the feeling of raw power, getting pushed back in your seat, you know, defying the laws of gravity. All of that stuff is just is just wonderful. In my, you know, microscopically limited career as a as a recreational pilot, I love landings because it's technically challenging. And so you're, you know, you're really having to concentrate, you're really having to work hard to get the little, you know, tiny uh, Cessna on the ground. And I, so I, I love them both, but I think as a passenger, it's got to be the takeoffs every time. And in fact, I'm almost sad when we land because the journey has come yeah. to an end. Well, what about you, Mark? Uh, because you fly also as a passenger. Do you, is your experience as a passenger different from the experience as a pilot? Obviously, but especially besides, you know, liking more one or the other, has your view on that changed since you've become a pilot? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I... I you know, I love takeoffs. I, as you say, that there's just that acceleration. And also, it's the start of a journey, and beginnings tend to be more exciting than endings in general. Um, but there's something about landings that there's like a, there's like a subtlety to landings or a, 
as a passenger, I mean, or, and the pace is different. Like you spend more time close to the ground on landing, you know, and take off, you climb up because climb up essentially as fast as, as the airplane and air traffic allow you to, because, you know, there's just more air. <laughs> I guess that's yeah. the simplest way to put it. There's, um, it's an unconstrained environment aside from the other aircraft, of course. Um, so you climb as fast as you can, whereas when you're going towards the ground, it's that's obviously a much more constrained and restrained um, maneuver. And because of that, you, you spend more time near the ground. And so those kind of views that you have of a city or a landscape tend to be uh, more drawn out on landing, and I'm a big fan of listening to music in the window seat, as maybe we discussed last time um, when I'm a passenger, uh, and I think that's a more, uh, I don't know, it seems like you have more more time and more space somehow on landing to sort of take in what's happening, whereas on takeoff, it's that power, and then you, and then you climb away, essentially. You know, the, the one thing that I, I find, because I said earlier that we don't see as passengers the, the runway itself. Especially when in holding patterns and when you know the area, I mean, the holding patterns in London, I know them by heart because God knows how many times I've done them. But yeah, I, do, yeah. I always try, as a, as a passenger, I always try to see, to locate that uh, landing strip. And obviously with the newer aircraft that have, especially the Airbuses that have this tail camera, I'm like, when will I be able to, there's almost that this uh, sense of, it's not, you know, anxious, but you're like, where is where is the where is the runway? I mean, you guys already know when you're in the front, but I'm like, when gonna be able to actually see it? And with the increase of you know HD cameras, you're like, oh, there you go, I got it. There it is. That's a runway. That's a runway. And that there's something also kind of cool about about landing. I try to make it like this. Uh, that's, so to be honest, I don't listen to music when I land because I'm too busy trying to film and look at the cameras and uh, find yeah, a runway. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> I've never actually flown on a plane as a passenger that had one of those cameras, but the editor of the book was reading the first draft of the book while she was on going on holiday somewhere. And that plane did have those cameras and she saw one of the sets of lights that I talk about in the book. I don't know if you guys yeah, have ever yeah, seen yeah. them, the, um, the pappies, which yeah. are these uh, precision approach path indicators, which are these uh, red and white sets of lights to the side of the runway. Those are the kind of thing that maybe uh, she didn't notice before until, until she came across it in the book. And those are, you know, good indicators of that, of that sort of invisible path in the sky that planes descend on you know you know the course is always um if you're ever on a i know i'm a kind of 747 crazed uh fan but uh, <laughs> if you're ever on if you're ever lucky enough to be in 1a or 1k on a 747 you can actually see a little bit forward yeah because the uh you know the nose starts to wrap around and there's no pesky uh cockpit in the way because <laughs> that's upstairs <laughs> um that's upstairs and behind you on the very rare occasions i've been in those seats it's uh it's a real pleasure i've been uh in such a flight was it thai airways from bangkok to Hong Kong, I think it was, and I was right in the nose, you know, on purpose, you know, because and you're right, we we see it. The other thing that for me has this kind of uh, much of a resonance where we land is that, uh, and you have to be pretty much, of course, in the front of the cabin to hear it. Is that little sound? Did it? Did it? Did it? That we hear that? You know, we know that the autopilot is coming uh, out. Yes, so is that what that is? That's an Airbus. That's that's what it is on the Airbus. Airbus, exactly. Airbus. And for me, that's okay. Now we're really on the final flight path. <laughs> and I love that sound. Yeah. I was going to say shit's getting real, but I, I can't. I guess I probably can't say that. Can <laughs> no, you can. That's amazing. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> by, by the way, since you mentioned Airbus, because you flew uh, before flying the 747, you were 320, right? That's right, yeah. How, 
I mean, it's a very big debate, but the, does the experience with a joystick, I'm sorry to use that term, is, is it really big, big uh, difference? Well, I mean, I'm, you know, my first, the first airliner I flew was the Airbus. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I got to know the side stick controller quite well. Um, obviously, your, your inputs are being processed by a computer, but, you know, you're not really aware of, I mean, because it's such a good system, you're not really aware of that, you know, as much as you think you might be. On the 747, the um, control column and, and control wheel are connected to cables, and those cables go, they run through the plane. I mean, they are, you know, wires being pushed and pulled, well, just pulled through the, through the plane. It, it's not like a Cessna where you're actually moving the control surface yourself, because they're obviously very large. Yeah. Um, so what well, you're moving are, are hydraulics uh, controls. But um, but there is a, you know, there is a sense of, of um, being in touch with what's happening, which is uh, something that is different on a 747 to most modern aircraft. And my understanding is that I'm pretty sure this is the case that newer Boeings, like the 787 and 777 control wheel and control column, are not connected by cables in the same way as they are on a 747. I could be wrong about that, but that's my understanding. Uh, we have clearance, Clarence, Roger, Roger, what's <laughs> our vector, Victor? I mean, how, how did that feel the first time you landed a 747? I mean, because that's probably much something that maybe Alex, you will, but I, I don't think I will ever experience. Maybe besides, you know, you know, you know, flight simulator, and I'm not talking about here being having a nice chair, um, <laughs> Microsoft flight simulator. I'm talking a proper flight simulator. How does that feel the first time? It was. I mean, it's really amazing. I mean, by the time I had done it the first time, obviously I had done it many times in the full motion flight simulator. But the first time I did it for real uh, was in Hong Kong. Oh wow! Yeah, and it was, it was, it was, it was wild. I mean, I we you know took off from London the night before, and you know it got dark during that flight, and then it got light during the day, obviously over Russia, and then it started to get dark again because it was I think it was just coming into winter, and so it kind of got dark again. And I, you know the longest flight I'd done before you know was like three hours to Helsinki or something, and and now I was at the end of this twelve-hour flight, and I just remember like. I mean, the fact that it got light and then got dark again was really um, indicative to me of how far we'd gone. And then it was quite hazy, um, as it often is in Hong Kong. You know, there were some lights below on the ground, but not really all that many. And then suddenly, I don't know, a minute before landing or something, I could see the approach lights uh, ahead. You know, you're kind of working on from the muscle memory, I guess is the term for it, that you've learned in the, in the simulator. You know, the, the, the plane is calling out these automatic heights. It's saying 100 out loud and, and then 50 and then as it comes to 30 you pull the nose up and you keep the uh, the center line of the runway and the next thing you know you feel the wheels touch down and I mean that was another reason I think that picking landing was the right topic for the book rather than takeoff because when I think about the experiences in my flying career that have been most memorable and most meaningful it's it's actually the landings I mean when I remember that and not the takeoffs like when I think about that first flight to Hong Kong you know the takeoff was amazing but it's the landing that I remember um, and maybe that's because, as you said, landings are more challenging. I don't know. I, I, there's something about it that about the landings that seems more uh, meaningful as a pilot. Maybe I'm, I'm not sure. I, I might, and I might be alone in that. It might, it might be the case that other pilots feel differently about it. Uh, you said meaningful. Is it also uh, more involved? Yeah. Because what it's I certainly harder. I mean, I, I think any student pilot would say that that a landing is more challenging than a takeoff. I think, I think that's my, I don't know, is, is, that, your, is that your sense? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, screwed up a lot more landings than I have takeoffs. <laughs> well, I was, I, was, yeah. I was thinking about it almost like, in a, I was thinking about it for another article I was writing just yesterday. And I mean, it's almost like a general principle. It's almost like entropy in a way, right? Like, like you're, I mean, when you're, 
it's harder to pull into a parking space than to pull out, isn't it? I mean, it's yeah. it's just that simple. Like it's it's like a law of motion that that it's harder to move into a confined um, or more precise space than it is to move out of one. I wonder if there's there must be other examples of that. I mean, even like you know, I'm I'm always amazed when I see like at the International Space Station or something, or even just in science fiction films, you see those you see that docking maneuver and you think, wow, that is a tough job. Like maybe it's all done badass. by computers. Yeah, it's badass. Um, and you think, but like compare that to, to detaching and flying away. I mean, that's clearly a, <laughs> you know, an easier yeah. um, task. And I don't know if there's some general rule, but it certainly has some parallels to takeoff versus landing in an airplane. And what, what I liked about it is that it's, you know, we live in a world more and more automated. And of course, a lot of people, we know that the modern aircrafts have a lot of automation, obviously, but, and with this book, it also reminds you about the importance of you, of the pilot. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, one of the things is about automatic landings, for example, which maybe isn't widely appreciated, is that they're actually, they're actually more work than a, than a manual landing. Really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you've got um, the procedures involved in, in setting up the aircraft for an automatic landing are, you know, reasonably laborious. And any pilot I know would, would much rather land it themselves than 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 go through um, that process. You know, that those systems are obviously very useful if it's foggy, but my sense is that when you're coming into into London or um, or Cape Town or something and you get the weather report and the visibility is poor enough that you can't land it manually, you know, most people are disappointed. <laughs> I think about that. It's there's a lot of procedures that need to be done and, and checks that need to be made and reprogramming that needs to be done. And most of us would just rather do it ourselves, which is, of course, why we became pilots as yeah. well. <laughs> well, that actually brings me to a question I've always wanted to ask. And I think that I think if you asked 100 pilots this, you'd get 100 different replies, which is a good thing. But we mentioned at the beginning that the universal physics of aviation don't change whether you're flying a Cessna or 747, but do you still get the same amount of joy from flying light aircraft now that you've flown the literally the queen of the skies? Or is it a little bit like going back to driving a moped after spending four seasons driving Formula One cars? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, so I'm, I think I'm like you guys, I'm a, I'm an airliner buff, you know, through and through. Like when I was a kid, even among the, the set of kids who were obsessed with airplanes, I mean, I was I was really really into airliners and I was I was always so irritated because I go to the toy shop, Toys R Us or whatever, and and the model airplanes they had were mostly military. Yeah. Um, which, oh yeah yeah my yeah. Son hates that. Yeah, which is which is you know which makes sense because you know those planes are faster and they're sleeker and they they're weapons and they're powerful and they're cool and I can see why they appeal especially to kids. Um, but I was always like, where's the Saudi Arabian Airlines L ten eleven model? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and. Um, you know, where's the Pan Am Classic 747? Um, so, you know, my my passion is really for airliners. And when I have flown a small plane, it's um, it's a really interesting experience because I don't do I don't do it all that often. And I think the thing you I notice the most is how how much more buffeted you are by the air. It feels like you're kind of surfing in a way, whereas on a 747, just just because it has so much um, so much physical momentum, it doesn't react to disturbances in the air in the same way. You know, there's very little that requires you know major corrections. Where as in a small plane, you, it, it feels like a much more uh, volatile environment. Of course, the other massive, massive difference is the landing. I mean, you're so much higher up in a 747 that the runway is. You know, in a small plane, you could you could you know you could flare multiple times and maybe even do a go around in the in the altitude that a 747 uses. <laughs> Um, just for this sort of standard flare, the difference in visual perspective is very dramatic. And I, I think uh, friends of mine who fly small planes 
have to remember that when the runway looks like it does in a 747, they're still a lot farther above the ground than they would be in a 747 or, or the wheels um, of a 747, of course, which are so much farther below you when you're in the flight deck. Yeah, I can imagine. We you, should get you guys into the simulator sometime. Have you have you been in a full motion oh, simulator? Or? I went in a Cathay 777 when I was 17 and haven't done since. So yeah, that would be a lot of fun. Oh yeah, we should. Yeah, uh, that, would be, that would be really fun. I, I'm sure it beats uh, having a chair in your bedroom trying to simulate that um, flight simulator. <laughs> <laughs> you, you had recently an XRAF person that you took on the on a flight simulator right yeah yeah so one of the um one of the people who helped me fact check skyfaring but also this little book is a is a retired uh captain uh for ba he's a really nice guy and he's given me a lot of help with all sorts of writing projects over the years and uh, took him into the flight simulator not long ago as a, as a way to thank him and he brought a uh, a friend of his who is in his um i believe in his early to mid mid 90s certainly in his 90s Wow, um, and, wow. and had been in the RAF and uh, had had a distinguished career, but hadn't hadn't flown much at all in the last decades. Um, and he um, got in the flight deck of the 747, and it was one of the most humbling experiences I've ever had because he, I mean, he just, I mean, he just knew what to do. I mean, he was, one, I mean, he was one of these guys who could. I mean, who could fly? Basically, I, I think you could have put him in anything, and he would have gotten it on the ground. Um, <laughs> wow! Yeah, it was pretty amazing. He kind of, and you know, there's some instruments that he hadn't seen before. There was there's an instrument called a vertical speed indicator, which basically says how, you know, how quickly you're climbing or descending. And he hadn't seen a digital version of that before. Um, in fact, I don't wow. I don't think he'd seen a digital ver- version of any of the instruments. Um, <laughs> some of them were obvious, um, you know, what they are: the artificial horizon, the vertical speed one was the only one I had to explain to him. But I, I think he thought it was, um, I think he thought it was for, you know, real pilots don't need that one. <laughs> so, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. He, he, he looked at it as if like, um, as if with a, a little bit of disdain. Um, and, and he did, um, he did just an amazing job. I, I was really, uh, uh, you know, um, he's, he'd never flown a 747 before. Uh, I think never an airliner before. Um, and he and he brought it in for a perfectly as, as nice a touchdown as, as I've ever done. Um, and uh, I was I was I was like, wow. <laughs> it was you know it's just a heartening. It was just one of those. It was just a very heartening thing to watch, and I, I hope it was fun for them too. Trust us, Mark. You won't have a heartening experience with either Alex or me. <laughs> <you're not. laughs> So since uh, we'll go, of course, back to the book. But since we were talking about uh, landings, uh, you're still flying the seven four seven. Obviously, the oh, I love this. I love this aircraft. We're so sad. Every episode, we're learning about a new airline that is ditching their seven four sevens. But BA, thank God, and a few others are, have not yet. You've you've been landing at airports you hadn't done before, and I think you mentioned King Khalid in Riyadh, so R U H, because I think it's one of the biggest. Airports, not of course in terms of passengers, but in terms of land. Does that make a difference when you land at an airport like that? I don't know if it makes too much of a difference the size of the physical size of the airport. What it does do is change the taxi time. Sadly, <laughs> um, actually, on the size of oh, yeah. on the size of airports, um, I recently went to Dallas. Uh, you know, that's a gigantic airport. They've got I think seven runways. And I was reading about it on, on Wikipedia because that's just the kind of exciting guy I am. And um, and. They were saying that the physical space of Dallas Fort Worth Airport is the size of Manhattan. Isn't that amazing? Jeez. Wow. I mean, oh, wow. Manhattan isn't small. I mean, it's, you know, it's, what is it, four miles by 12 miles or something? I don't know. That kind of blew me away. Anyways, um, so Riyadh is also, is also quite large. I think that it's just the two runways. But yeah, it's amazing to go there. And, you know, and the climate is just, 
you know, I kind of have a an interest in climate extremes. I kind of I kind of like really cold places and really hot places. And you know, the weather in Riyadh is just. I mean, yeah. it's, it's it's just amazing to to kind of walk out into 45, 46, 47 degrees. And uh, unlike in some of the cities on the coast in the Gulf, it's it's quite a dry heat. It feels a lot like Phoenix or something, and it's um, it's just amazing to be there. And you often have, you know, dust in the air—not not quite dust storms, but certainly dust um, blowing in the air, just coming off. And you're like, "Wow, I'm in Arabia." It's kind of, it's yeah. kind of, uh, it's kind of amazing. The mentions of Phoenix and conditions like that made me think that invariably, when I fly into Phoenix and Vegas, uh, especially between like February and November, when it's hot, they are almost invariably turbulent, especially Vegas, which is surrounded by mountains. Does that, and of course, when you're taking off the performance stuff changes a lot, but when you're, when you're landing in a place that has, you know, that is hot like that, and there's a lot of, a lot of thermals, do you, do you change what you do? Do you, do you take the autopilot off sooner rather than later or vice versa? Does, does that type of environment change the way you fly? A lot of the time, the turbulence um, is due to um, you know to rising air to, to the sun heating the ground and then that, that air rising. So, for example, when we land in Riyadh, it's um, you know it's very late at night when we get there. It's very warm, but you don't have that kind of um, vertical disturbance in the air so much. In fact, the last time I went there, which wasn't very long ago, it was as smooth as glass. I mean, <laughs> I, I could not believe how it was the smoothest air I, I can remember flying in. I mean, I think I put in between sort of a thousand feet and touchdown, I put in maybe one input <laughs> on the control oh, wow. It was just, um, it was, you know, it was, it's really, it was really remarkable. I mean, places like Phoenix and, and Las Vegas, that you do have that turbulence when the sun is out, especially. Um, it's something you know about in advance and, and something you're, you're sort of ready for, but it doesn't, you know, and as you say, the heat changes things about, about the, uh, the way you fly, but the, the, that turbulence is just something you kind of know to expect. I actually did my um, visual flight training in small planes in Phoenix. Um, we were there in the winter. You know, there's a lot of flight schools in the area for because the weather is so nice uh, for flying. There's I don't know. There's a lot of um, both American and foreign uh, airline pilots doing their, their training in, in this uh, whole set of airports that ring uh, the valley in Phoenix. Um, and we were there in the winter, and we actually had ice on the plane on the wings in the morning. Isn't that amazing? Wow. Uh, that is amazing. Yeah, we actually weren't in in you know downtown Phoenix. We were um, in Mesa, which is out to the east. Actually, Gilbert, I think, was the town we were in. But in the morning, you'd have you'd wake up and there was ice on the wings. You know, you'd, you'd be doing your checks before before dawn, really, and then you know waiting for the sun to come up to go flying. And then as soon as the sun would come up, within minutes, it would melt the ice off one wing, and then you'd push the plane around so the other wing was into sun. And then you know five minutes later, that one was was dripping wet, and and, and you're ready to go. <laughs> I just mentioned that the, the seven four seven, you know, is 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 our favorite plane. Where we're so sad to see it going. Uh, actually. Just a tidbit. You just mentioned that it was so hard to find. You know these uh, replica of, of of planes where we were kids. I, I was in Italy recently, and I was in the Alter Grill. You know, one of these uh, places that on the highway to just have food. And they're always a like, great food. You still have uh, Alitalia seven four seven. You know, scale model planes. Alitalia doesn't have a seven four seven since at least <laughs> fifteen years. It's so amazing. It's so amazing. And so to see how how you know uh, iconic the plane is. You know that they, they don't have it and they still sell it as, as for for kids. So are you tempted? to try another plane yeah i am i mean i'm I, it's hard to know when to switch the, the process of switching is to, you know, depends on, on the airline and it depends uh for us at ba it depends on there being vacancies and uh, the training plan but um, i'm at the point where I, could, where I probably could switch um and this december is 10 years on the 747 for me wow yeah and i'm kind of i'm contemplating the 787 i mean it's it's i think it's, it's a beautiful airplane it also 
you know, when I first started flying long haul, you know, I, I had been flying short haul for years, so I, I kind of knew every major city in Europe quite well, um, just from, you know, regular night stops there. And, and when I started long haul, it kind of, I felt like I was like going to a new planet almost like there were just all these, there were all these major cities that I'd never been to before. Um, that suddenly I was, you know, I went to, you know, to Bangkok and, and Hong Kong and India and and Singapore and Sydney and, um, you know, Mexico City and, you know, these places that I kind of got to know these places. It was like a new map for me. And, um, you know, one of the things about the 787 is that it's opening up these sort of longer, thinner routes. And so already it has a set of cities that I haven't been to. Like, like I've never been to Seoul. I've never been to, um, to Chennai. I've never been to Santiago in, in Chile. And... You know, it's tempting to. I've never, I've never been to um, to Montreal, really. I've never been to Nashville, which is coming. I've never been to San Jose in California. You know, so there's all these. I've never been to Calgary. <laughs> I could go on. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so, so you know, one of the things that appeals to me, in addition to the airplane, is the sense of having that experience of seeing new cities again. I mean, you guys are obviously regular travelers. I mean, what was the last? Was there like a, a like a big, a really big city you went to recently for the first time that kind of opened your eyes to travel again or, or have you guys been pretty much everywhere at this point <laughs> no, no, no not by a long time oh, that's wow. a great question though i mean we tend to fly to very similar posts all the time because obviously due to our work or clients etc which is a shame so i try to find you know strange routings when i have like two layovers just to try new airports it doesn't mean that i'm going to the city but has one city actually made me no i've like you I have a list i mean some of the cities you mentioned i've been to but i have a list of uh, odd cities i, I want to do you know like that they're like i don't know panama city you know i want to go to cities that i've never been to of course the airport but of course cities but recently uh it seems to me although for people that are listening to our show they always say oh paul and alex are always going to these places there's a pattern we tend to go to various similar places all the time don't you alex yeah right? yeah pretty uh, for better or worse there's one i i i'm like paul i always take a picture of of when i'm landing and one of the pictures i keep going back to is shanghai just it when you're flying over it, maybe you're at about, I don't know, 12,000 feet or something like that. The city just goes on and on and on and on. And I just couldn't get over how just gargantuan that was. And you're only ever going to get that view from, from an airplane to really appreciate how, A, how big the city is and B, how much it's grown in the last, in the last 20 years. But yeah. the, the other one I was just saying to Paul, and you mentioned it just a second ago was, uh, I have family in the, in the East Bay of San Francisco. And so we go the, go there a lot. And I've started taking the BA flight to San Jose just because it's just a much easier airport for where I need to get to. And that is such a great airport to take off out of for two reasons. One, it's a Dreamliner. So you've got those huge, beautiful windows. Yeah, yeah. But you also have to do, when you take off, you go straight into a circuit above the airfield so that you climb above the arriving traffic to Oakland and San Francisco. So you get this beautiful tour of the Bay Area before you start heading northeast and the flight leaves at dusk. So you just sit there and face pressed against these beautiful big windows as you as you get a grand tour of the Bay oh, Area. Oh, cool. I'm so looking forward to the. So you guys are 787 fans? Or? Yeah. I call it the new 747. It's, it's a rock star. <laughs> uh, well, nothing, nothing could make it appeal to me more than that. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's of course you know these new aircraft the 350 on one hand and the, the 787 uh, listeners to the show will know that i find uh three i love them both but the 350 is more like a 
European Berlin, you know, these uh, big Mercedes cars, you know, so it's very sturdy and it's, uh, of course, it's very fast and very quiet. I find the, the 787 more like an American sports car, as in it's a bit uh, uh, more rocky but in a good sense, you know, like it's like a Camaro or a Mustang. Right, right. So there's something very, very sexy to, I mean, both are great, right? You, you want the Mercedes or the, I don't know, the BMW 7 Series on one hand, but you also want the Mustang or the Camaro or whatever on the other hand. So both are, I love these planes. I, lo- uh, I, they, love, they are, I love the uh, winglets on the 350. Those, oh, yeah. those like blades. I mean, I'm. I half suspect they have no aerodynamic function at all. They just they just look really good. <laughs> 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 they like somebody came up with them and they're like, well, you know, they don't actually they don't actually help, you know. Um, and then someone's like, actually, they make it even they make it even less efficient. But they're like, it looks great. You stick them on there. Now they look really good. <laughs> you know, you love to take pictures, and you always ask uh, passengers to take pictures. These are the best pictures when you get both the the, the wingtip and the view. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, so yeah, yeah, they're amazing. I, I like the um, the seven eight seven windows, but I had a very odd experience the first time I flew on the plane as a passenger. I am, um, I, 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 I wasn't really, I wasn't really, I, I didn't really know what those windows did, and I think I was going to Newark. And it was a day flight, you know, I left London in the morning and got to Newark, you know, a few hours later. And I, I went to sleep. And when I woke up, those windows had been dimmed, but I didn't know about the dimming and it looked like the moon. So the sun, the sun was coming in and it looked like dusk. I mean, it looked like and it, and with the moon rising and I was, I was suddenly very confused about um, <laughs> what time of day it was and, and, and how jet lagged I was. And, um, and then I realized it was those. It was actually the sun behind those high dimming windows, and it's nice because you can have you can have that view because the sun was low in the sky. It would have, if they were blinds, everyone would have closed them because the sun would have been in their eyes and on their screens. And um, but I was. It took me a minute to realize what was happening. <laughs> yeah, I, I, and I do love that because even on their dimmest setting. On a day flight, you can still see through them as you know as as clear as anything. Yeah, there's a kind of colored. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's like so, almost purpley. Yeah, and I, I love this because if you have a camera, you can take the most amazing pictures as in as if you had filters. Yeah. Because there's, there's like it's purple, bluish, depending on the time of the day. It's 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 pretty amazing. Although Alex has had recently, that was in the last episode, like some uh, strange issues with it. Yeah. <laughs> the first time I tried it myself was. Uh, it seems to be not as responsive because you're so used to have a blind, you know, so you press a button, it goes up. But I mean, the size of the windows make it up for oh, it. It just yeah, uh, for it's sure, amazing. Yeah. yeah, and of course, the flight deck of the 787 has a has a head-up display screen, and, which you can see through, but has uh, flight data projected onto it. And I've never flown with one of those, so that'll be something. Uh, something so, so what would it entail for you to switch besides simply, okay, deciding for you and asking BA, I don't know. Yeah, how so, did you- yeah so you put a bid in for, for what you like. Um, and if you're lucky enough to get it, then um, they'll assign a course for you at some point during the, the year. And, you know, the course is generally two to three weeks in the classroom. When I did it on the 747, it was it was slightly computer-based training, but a lot of paper still. I think it's now all computer-based. And then you have two or three weeks in a flight simulator. So I don't know how many sessions exactly, but you know, quite a few sort of sessions where you go in, have an hour and a half discussion in advance, then you go into the simulator for four hours, and then you come back and have a little discussion afterwards. Um, so yeah, a couple of weeks of that, and then um, a month of what's called line training, where you're actually flying. Um, planes uh with special training captains uh in the cockpit with you meaning with passengers yeah that's, passengers. No, that's with passengers yep yep so the, the flight the okay. flight simulators are called zero flight time simulators so they're they're considered so perfect 
that at the end of your simulator training, you're given an exam. So you have to do a, one of the set, the last of your simulator sessions will be a, a multi-hour exam of a flight. And that is considered, because the simulators are so good, that's considered to be equal to, to flying the real plane. When I, when I started wow. my Airbus training, because we were cadet pilots, um, we hadn't you know flown airliners before, we'd only flown small planes. So we had the simulators and the exams, but we also had a day of, um, we took an aircraft out to France to an airport called uh, chalon Vatry. You know, there were six of us, six trainees and maybe three trainers or something. And it's an empty airport. Uh, there's nobody else there. And you just have the runway uh, for yourself for the day. And you go around nice. and you do circuits um, in, a, in an Airbus, which is empty, except for your friends who are cheering you on from the from the club cabin. That's um, so cool. It's really wild. It's really fun. <laughs> and we actually, we actually drew straws um, to see who would go first. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I went first, I got the, the longest or shortest, I can't remember, which I wanted to go first anyways. And, um, you know, because none of the landings are full stops, you know, you don't actually stop the plane after each landing, you land and then, and then take off right away again. Um, you actually jump into the seat while the plane is in the air. Um, so, um, you know, the trainer, you know, there were two trainers in the, in the front seats in the, in the flight deck and, um, they did the first touch and go at this airport. And then once they were in the the traffic pattern, one of the trainers got out of the right-hand seat and I got in and sort of was given control of the plane actually in flight, which was kind of a wild experience. Um, so in that sense, I landed the plane before I took it off. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to close the show soon because we know that you have uh, pilot duties to attend to at some point as well. <laughs> that's, that's right. Yeah. Uh, there's a reason, guys, uh, who's listening that I've made some uh, little airplane quotes uh, during the show. I mean, if you have never seen the movie, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast, by the way, guys. <laughs> there's, a, there's a big miss in your life. You actually called one of your chapters, uh, you know, the, the famous uh, Dr. Rumek. I just want to tell you both good luck and we're all counting on you. I never realized, is that, is that really a, a, a movie that is like maybe not revered, but I've much appreciated amongst pilots? I think, I think, I think revered is, is a perfectly apt word for how pilots feel about that film. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, it's, class, it's classic. And, I, mean, I, I mean, people often make jokes about it, and not, not just me. I mean, you know, people often um, make a, a little joke on the flight deck, which is a reference to that film. Um, I, think, I, I think we all pretty much know it by heart. I mean, it actually gets funnier as the years go on i mean it's it's sort of le- it's sort of less politically correct as the years as the years go on but it's um you know it, it is just a, it is just a classic and you know this is this is awful of me but i actually never saw the films it's parodying is it airport oh uh, yeah airport where the where the first yeah, movie yeah so I, i've never seen those so i've only seen the parody but i should probably go back to the <laughs> i should probably watch the original at some point well you know what there's four i think and the more it goes the more they feel like a parody i think at some point there's one with a 747 and he's underwater and they survive and there's another one with there's a concord with alain delon it doesn't make any sense of no uh, keep watching airplane it's, it's just uh, it's just better but i wish alex we could hear that sometimes on atcs and hear these uh, jokes and quotes and reference from from airplane that would be so fun that would be great I do, I do love that. When I was writing the um, the section in the in, the, uh, in How to Land a Plane in the little book about uh, about instruments, and I was talking about the airspeed indicator and how it has different zones on it, and it has yellow zones and white zones and red zones. I actually had a I actually had a line in there where I just put in parentheses the red zone is for well, the white zone is for loading and unloading, um, and I thought this is getting a little bit. I actually took it out because I thought it was getting a little bit into the weeds. Like if you didn't if you didn't know the film, most of the other references yeah, you, you would skip it. over, but that one you would really puzzle over if you hadn't seen the film. <laughs> or you might just think it was annoying if you didn't like the film. So I took it out. <laughs> uh, 
maybe let's talk uh, about because we called the the name of the show Nairobi because there's a reason for that. It was not only because we wanted to go with the airport. Uh, have you been to Nairobi, Alex? No, to the airport? no, no, I haven't. Uh, me neither. But there's a reason. I mean, we might not go to you know our usual description of the airport, but there's a there's a reason for you uh, to talk about this airport because uh, I think it was one of the one of the decisions about you being a pilot was made there. Yeah, I mean, I, I was in grad school way back when, and I, I went to Kenya to do some research. I was doing a PhD, which I really wasn't that passionate about, certainly not compared to my interest in, in airplanes. Um, and it was while I was, you know, there in Nairobi that I thought, you know what, you know, I'm, I don't know what I was, 24, 25, you know, I've always wanted to come pilot. I should just, I should just, you know, you only live once, like, let's, let's, you know, you might as well give it a go. You can always figure out something else to do. And so I left my research there and, you know, I was supposed to be there for a year. I only ended up staying six or seven weeks. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, and then I, I came back to the UK and it, actually I was flying, um, when I came back, I flew on Gulf Air, I think. So oh. I changed planes in Abu Dhabi, I think. Um, and then on the, on the way back, I went up to the flight deck. Um, no, sorry, I changed in Bahrain, I guess. But I Bahrain. think it also stopped in the UAE for some reason. I remember a very short yes. stop, like a 40-minute stop somewhere. Maybe it was just a cabotage. Maybe they were just picking up passengers. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And then on the way back from uh, after changing plans in the Gulf, um, I went up to the flight deck, uh, which you could do in those days. And uh, I was chatting with the co-pilot. We were over Istanbul and um, could see the whole city. And I talked about this a little bit in Skyfaring, I think. And, you know, just this, you know, that co-pilot wasn't much older than me. I mean, I think he was in his mid-20s. And I thought, you know what? I should, yeah, let's, let's just give it a go. But Nairobi, I mean, it is an amazing, it's an amazing place for other reasons. I mean, I'm a big fan of um, Isaac Dennison, who wrote Out of Africa. Um, mm -hmm. And she lived there, obviously. And her farm, you can go visit her farm today. Um, it's a nice museum. And also the in Nairobi is a national um, park in the city. So on my last trip there so i hadn't been there for you know decades until last october when i finally went back there as a pilot so it was kind of wild oh so you did that was my yeah. next question so you did actually land there as a pilot yeah now. so last october um for the, oh. for, i went back there nearly not, not quite 20 years after i had last been there it was just a really nice feeling to um to kind of go back and um you know, to return as a pilot to the place where I made that decision. And when I was um, when I was there 20 years ago, internet access was was kind of hard to come by then. And so I went to the hotel that the BA crew stayed at to get internet access to check my email and stuff. And I remember seeing these crews coming in off the flight from London and and thinking like, oh wow, you know, they like they just flew here. It's like that's their job. Like wow. And, I was, <laughs> and um, so to come back as as such a crew member was a really um, really nice experience. I mean, what else could you ask for? Really, it was literally. A, life-changing yeah literally life-changing <laughs> if you ever go to nairobi um, i recommend isaac denison's house karen blixen's house uh, and also the national park um, on my last trip there maybe 15 or 16 of the crew we all went out for this day safari there and i mean you see basically everything in, i mean we saw lions and zebras and hippopotamuses and water buffalo and wildebeest and and in the distance of the skyscrapers of downtown nairobi so it's it's quite a city you guys were mentioning before, and I, since we're on recommending places, if you've never been, and I'm not sure that the Dreamliner will ever fly there, is the second airport of Rio de Janeiro, so not Galeao, but Santos Dumont. Oh, wow. uh, it's a SDU. This is also as a passenger, but probably as a pilot, this must be one of the best landings ever because you are, it's an airport in the city as compared to the other which is outside, and the views are absolutely stunning, really 
Mark, if you can find a way to land there ever in your the rest of your career, you should try. Well, so, so I've actually I've been to Rio a few times, and um, one of the um, this this will uh, this will out geek even you guys. But um, I <laughs> I was um, I, when I went up the Sugarloaf last time I was there, um, you can actually look down on that airport. Oh wow! Yeah, and, uh, exactly. Yeah, and, 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 ra- and yeah. rather than look at the uh, at the city. <laughs> And the bay and the beaches, and I was just looking down at the airport, thinking, "Oh wow, I can look down on an airport." <laughs> but it, I've never, never flown there. I'd, lo- I'd like to do that someday. I think you mentioned that in the book because you haven't flown the seven eighty seven yet uh, as a pilot. You haven't made a decision. Is that term, you know, the decide? Is that still there for all Boeing aircraft? Uh, I think it is. I think it's a. Um, I think it is a Boeing standard. I'm, I'm not completely sure. On the on the Airbus, it says minimum. For some reason, it's not as sexy as design. No, no, it's um, I think I, if I remember on the Airbus, it's a male voice and it says minimums or something like that. Um, I'm sure, um, I'm sure one of your listeners or or, or one of us can find it on YouTube. I, I'm pretty sure it says minimums. It's not quite as uh, cool as decide. Yeah, I, I love that decide. I, I, but I'm not sure that if I were to have a Cessna, somebody will tell me decide now. But I really have <laughs> because that, that was really also what you wrote. And again, I'm, I'm quoting back from you, Eon, uh, the parlance of pilots, when you basically said that this could be a decision-making tool that could be deployed in meeting rooms around the world. I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, for crying out loud, make a decision, let's get out of that meeting now. I, said, I would love to have this voice recorded and just like having an app, a press yeah, I mean, it, 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 could, it could be an app. It could be an app you could sell for like one pound and its only function could be to say that when you press when you press. The <laughs> that could be its only function. You could be, and I'm sure it'd be a big hit. I'd buy it. So, so you, your book, uh, How to Land a Plane, uh, when is it going to be out exactly, and how can we find it? Uh, so it's it's out in the UK on uh, on the twenty first of September. If you're in the UK, obviously there's you know it'll be in any bookshop. If you're outside the UK, um, I think you need you'll need to go to Amazon.co.uk uh, to find it. Possibly one of the other uh, UK retailers like Waterstones, maybe they can ship overseas as well. I know Amazon UK can. And if anyone uh, has a chance to come across it, I hope they'll enjoy it, and uh, and that I'll see them on board, and I'll see you guys on board sometime soon. I hope. Fantastic. Yeah, we every time I'm on. 747 i always pay t- close attention when the flight deck crew are introducing themselves and it hasn't happened yet but it will because we travel a lot and there's not that many 747s left in the no, well, how many no. are there there's like what 45 i think it's in the mid 30s now um oh. yeah oh. i'm starting to get panic attack. <laughs> <laughs> you know they're still they're still coming off the line i mean i think um the i think there's still 747-8s maybe maybe they're nearing the end of the passenger ones uh, but you know, there's certainly UPS. Is it UPS? Some some of the cargo airlines have, have ordered some. I, I think um, the next Air Force Ones will be. Um, Dash eight. Yeah, yeah. So there's there's well, there's some life in it yet. I think. Because I don't want to see it. You know, it, it, you know it's so iconic. I, are you guys watching Game of Thrones? Yeah. Um, there was a uh, there was an interview in, in the New York Times with one of with a, I believe one of the producers of the show, um, and he was talking about uh, the dragons, and he was saying like, well, um, you have to get used to the idea of a lizard the size of a seven forty. You know, he didn't say Boeing. He didn't say it was an airplane. He just said 747. And that was something that he, in, in 2017, he could expect his audience to understand. As a cultural icon, it's certainly not going anywhere. And uh, to, to cap it off, do you still ask for, you know, people to send you pictures from the window? Yeah, that's the, uh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. If anyone... Um, 
has photos they take from the window seat. And I'd love to see them. There's a gallery on my website, which is um, skyfaring.com. I'm always happy to get an email, and um, and people usually enclose some details about the flight, which is which is uh, which is as fun to read as the pictures are to look at. Do not look forward for when I'm going to start doing that because you'll receive about ten thousand <laughs> pictures in one go. <laughs> okay, Mark, on that, thank you so much yeah, so uh, for being with us again. Uh, the book is really, honestly, not only it's informational, but I. I felt I couldn't leave it because I needed to land a plane, right? There was this feeling of I was in command, I need to do something. So I really, really encourage people to read it because it's a really cool book. And I hope, Mark, that you will be again with us uh, soon. But until then, I hope that, uh, like Alex, we uh, see you in a 747 or maybe, maybe, maybe uh, someday in a, a 787 in a Dreamliner. Well, that sounds great. Thanks a lot, guys. And um, yeah, I'll uh, I'll talk to you soon.